Welcome back to The Knife with the Gunfight, and I have to admit, it's been an amazing summer of music and free concerts in New York City, from Diggable Planets and KRS-One in Red Hook, to the Philharmonic Orchestra in Central Park, and the Tribe Called Red, as well as Talib Kweli and a New Orleans brass band. But this season also marks the end of my surgical training in New York City, and as such, the end of Season 1 of The Knife with the Gunfight. But I wanted to bring you as a recap of Season 1, a condensed version of my interview with Dr. Damon Mullins, The Ballet Bullet, to include the entirety of that interview in one episode. And by the end of the summer, we'll begin a new season as I begin training in surgical critical care and trauma in Baltimore. So, stay tuned. Welcome back to The Knife at the Gunfight. I'm here with a good friend of The Knife, Dr. Damon Mullins, one of the premier uh, military sociologists of our generation, or at least in southwest Pennsylvania. Is at least one of those two statements fair to say? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> and I wanted to talk to you about trauma and the citizen soldier. Yeah. And in order for you know people listening to understand why I give such weight to your words, I wanted to really understand kind of where you're coming from. So uh, can you start off, just tell us real quick, where did you grow up? And for example, where did you go to high school? So my first memories were being foster care and public housing in Coney Island until I was about seven. And then at that time, I started to live with my mother, who I'd only met at that time. Uh, actually, she grew up in the same foster home that I grew up in. She was a teenage mom. And she gave birth to me there and sort of absconded and then came back a number of years later. Then I began to live with her and she had a husband and other children at that time uh, for the next about 10 years of my life. And where'd you go to high school? Ballet Tech. So it's a public school for dancers in New York City. So you're a classically trained ballet dancer. Yes, absolutely. How did you find your way into um, ballet dancing from, you know, growing up in foster care and everything else? going to this public school in Bed-Stuy. I was in the fifth grade and they, instructors at Ballet Tech came to my school and they auditioned everyone in the fifth grade. <laughs> I didn't know that it was a ballet school. No one knew that it was a ballet school. And I think even if you told me that it was a ballet school, I'm not necessarily sure that I would have known exactly what that was. Like I obviously had seen a ballerina before, you know, but I didn't know what boys had to do with that. I remember when the instructor said, imagine that there is a big pond in the middle of the stage and you just want to run and you want to jump across the pond as high and as far as you can so that you don't get wet and you don't fall in the middle. So I remember just running and launching myself across the stage and that was it. I got picked to go to ballet tech and in fact they had only picked like four students, you know, in my school. I find this very interesting and I think in the future I'll be talking more about artistic expression and therapeutic value with regard to trauma. But this is early in the story, but what do you think that experience uh, learning classical dance meant for you? I am incredibly devoted to ballet tech in so many ways because they gave me an opportunity to realize aspects of myself that were very difficult for me to ever realize outside of the experiences that they provided me. And in fact, I don't know that I would have, I would have been prepared or even willing to take on some of the challenges in my life had I not learn to dance. And also the teachers that I had, some of them, you know, they were incredibly adept at working with children, particularly inner city children. And um, I had this one instructor who made a great impression upon me, Daniel Levins. And he still does uh, because he passed away like two years ago. I had the opportunity to tell him at one point when I returned from the military that the lessons that he taught me in dance, in so many ways I had abstracted and they became life lessons, and they carried me through. What's happening at the end of high school? 
it was a scary time. I didn't have a plan. I, I didn't even have the social capital of a person who could, you know, make a decision to go to college. You know, like I wanted to go to college. I tried to go to college, but not only the social capital I, I didn't have, I didn't have the capital. I went to college and leaving college in the Bronx, and it was a very lonely experience. Uh, I did one semester of college. I got really great grades, and I couldn't pay for the bill at the end of the semester, so I couldn't register the next semester. And then it kind of set in that, you know, life wasn't going to be easy. You know, like I knew it wasn't going to be easy because it was always difficult, but that was the kind of moment where I had no, I was almost like a balloon floating off from the surface of the planet, and I didn't know how anything was going to take shape. So then what did you do after you couldn't uh, re-enroll for the following semester? This is the, the craziness of my life. Is like I had an opportunity all of a sudden to go and work with a fashion company, an urban wear company, Pure Players. Uh, in the 90s, they sold urban wear, they sold clothing. I was supposed to be a kind of interning there and then an administrative worker, but working for the marketing director, I would help her run photo shoots. And so my job was to help her transport all the clothes to the photo shoots. And in like the dressing room, the big closet room, I would be in there with a steamer. And with the steamer, I would just hang up all the clothes and I would steam them all so then the models could come out and they can change their clothes and then they can go back in there and take pictures, you know? And one time when I was out there steaming the clothes, I remember they were playing some music. I, I think at the time what they were playing was, uh, it was like Mace. And uh, I was dead. Party people in the place to be. It's about that time. What you know about going out, head west, red legs, TVs, all up in the head. While I was seeing the clothes, and I remember the photographer, his name was Hassan Jerang, he came out and he looked at me, he started laughing, and he was like, you should put on some clothes and take some pictures. And then that was the beginning of me modeling for pure players. So at this point in your life, you're a rollerblader, a ballet dancer, a college dropout, and a fashion model. Is that correct? Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. And none of it was of my design. It was all just opportunities that kind of fell on me. So how then, how did you end up going from, from that to the, the military? When I was in high school, I remember one time in Union Square Park, there was uh, some kind of military recruiting group came out there. And we spoke to all these different people and I got it into my head at the end of high school that I wanted to join the Marines. And it was really an obvious thing to me that I needed to join the military because I knew that I wasn't going to go anywhere. And I knew I didn't have any, the ability to go to college. Uh, because I couldn't afford it, and I also didn't even understand. This is a crazy thing to me, because when I graduated from high school, I was the first male in my family that had graduated from high school. And I mean, in terms of my, my mother's husband, in terms of his family, you know, because he had brothers. But yeah, I was the first male to graduate from high school, to not get a GED, but to graduate from high school. And so it was like uncharted territory, and I knew that. And so joining the military just seemed like it seemed like something that I needed to do because it was the only thing that would give me opportunities to keep going. And so I got it in my head that I wanted to join the Marines. I told my mother about that and she flipped out like really bad. So by the end of high school, I kind of let it go. But I had already taken the ASVAB. I had already done all of this. Then when I was modeling, I actually had to do this fashion convention out in Las Vegas, which was the first time that I ever even got on an airplane to model at this fashion convention in, in Vegas called The Magic Show. So it was a really exciting thing for me. You know, this company's paying for me to go out there. And so, like, I was hanging out, doing this real, living this real fast life, not uh, ahead of many of my years. I met a girl out there. She was a little bit older than me. I went back to New York, and I was about to change from working with pure players to working with Supra, Supra exclusively, this Japanese company. And I had two weeks in between the jobs. I flew out to Vegas to visit this girl for two weeks. And I didn't come back for a year. And I hit rock bottom when I was in Vegas living with this girl. I'd never lived with a woman before. I had to work like real jobs. You know, I couldn't, I, in Vegas, I thought that I could just go out there and be a model like I was in New York, you know. Um, but it wasn't going to happen like that. First of all, there weren't companies out there like that. I wound up taking odd jobs. I worked as a collections agent. Oh, man. Collections was the worst, and I, it was what I did the longest. It really zapped my whole spirit. You know, initially my plan was to go into the military, and one day I was watching television, 
a military came, commercial came on. And in fact, they were driving tanks. And I remember the ch- tank jumped over a berm. And I was like, man, that shit's cool. I could do that. I didn't think about the political implications of that. I didn't think about the world and geopolitics. I didn't know anything about that. I didn't have an education for that. Hmm. I just was trying to survive. And I, so I enlisted in the National Guard. I just wanted education benefits. And I was, went to see a National Guard recruiter. And he was telling me at the time, this is like the year 2000. Oh, yeah, you're, you'll be in the National Guard. He's like, I've been in the National Guard for like 15 years right now. You know, I did like four years in the Army. You're do, you do all your training with the Army. You're trained just like the Army. You train with them. You're, uh, and then every, every month and then one time a year, you have a big training operation just to keep your skills sharp. But mostly as a National Guard soldier, as a National Guardsman, he's like, you know, you will be fighting things perhaps like civil disobedience. What else did he say? He said natural disasters. And then the thing that tickled me, and he was like, yeah, and like if aliens came and invaded the United States, and I started laughing. So I was like, yeah, and I could go to college, and I could, you know, get the experience of being in the military and move forward with my life. And so I did it in, two, in the year 2000. I wound up being stuck in basic training for months longer than I should have been, and it was because the military had a problem with cycling people through and they had too many recruits and they didn't have enough drill instructors. And so they just held on to me for months and months and months. They had me, you know, doing small little details. I mowed the lawn for the first time in my life, you know, with a weed whacker. And then toward the end of basic training was in fact when September 11th happened. So where were you when the September 11th happened? Do you remember? I'll never forget that day because in basic training, you know, every day you're hoping that the suffering is not going to be as bad as the day before. I remember we went to Chow. You're just like shoveling food down your gullet because if you even look up, you know, they'll take your food away. And then just like every day after Chow, we get back in formation and they marched us to this building that was unfamiliar. And they followed us in in this very orderly way that they do everything, you know, and had us sit down uh, with our legs crossed on the ground, on the floor. And then on the large television at the front of this room, they had projected this image of the Twin Towers and Osama bin Laden juxtaposed. And I didn't know who the hell he was at the time. But everybody in my unit and my company knew that I was from New York City because my drill instructor hated me and he would call me Private Brooklyn. And so people kept looking at me and they were like, yo, Brooklyn, like, what's, yo, what's this? When the drill instructor said, we're being attacked and you guys are, you know, in a combat arms unit. You're being trained to be armored crewmen. Remember I watched that commercial of the tank jumping over the berm. So when I enlisted, you know, I did really well on the ABSVAB. So I could have picked any job in the military. And I went and picked, you know, one of the most difficult jobs, you know, to be, you know, in an aggressive combat position, operating on a tank. I remember when he said this verbatim, he's like, so you're going to war, boy. You better take your training seriously because you're going to have to use it. And that was like the mantra for the rest of that time in basic training. You're going to war, boy. I mean, I was always very com- competitive uh, when it came to athletics. When it came to dance, that was something that made me good, that gave me edge. And in the military, I found that a childhood of dancing ballet, in fact, made me so much better in the military than my counterparts. The physicality of it wasn't difficult at all. I mean, in fact, it was so much easier than dancing. It was incredibly easier than dancing. But... What made it more difficult were, was the elements, was the fact that we were deprived of food, uh, was the fact that we were deprived of sleep. You know, those were the things that really made it difficult, you know. But in terms of the physicality of it, I mean, I was great. I was in my basic training unit. I was the bookman, so I keep track of all the activities that we do and the paperwork that needs to be processed and all this sort of stuff. And they gave me that job because I told them that I had done administrative work in this urban wear company before. And so I didn't tell them anything about modeling. They, they you know, I, I already had enough. <laughs> for them to, you know. So, so they made me the book man, but it was funny because I was a book man, but I was also kicking ass in basic training, especially the uh, pugilist exercises. We would have competitions. I win. <laughs> it's kind of crazy to say, you know, but I did really enjoy hitting other people, you know, and I grew up like that. And it was a place where I could, fight like that and I wasn't going to be convicted or accused or, you know, it's interesting to me how 
a person can live a life like me where fighting is such a huge part of my life and my childhood. And then there comes a point in your life when you have to accept the fact that you can't ever fight again without consequences. But that has become such a vehicle for your personality. And how do you extricate it from yourself? So then where do, where do you go from there after basic training? I went back to my unit in New York City, and my unit had spent about a month already uh, activated. They were the first unit to respond to September 11th, the first National Guard unit to respond to September 11th. And so they were, you know, for a month already, by the time I got back, they were pulling bodies out of the rubble. They were looking for bodies in the rubble. They were policing various parts of the city. And so I was, I received orders from them and as soon as I came home to be on state act, what they call state active duty. So I was doing those same thing, patrolling around the city, ground zero, things like that. Uh, and it wasn't until 2004 that I would find myself deployed. This is really early in the war. You know, the war starts at the end of 2003. And in the beginning of 2004, I'm receiving orders that I'm going to go uh, and fight in Iraq. But I'm in a really old school armor unit. And while we had trained on tanks and everything, we were ordered off of the tanks, which is pretty wild because tankers are really proud about their armor. And so, you know, the mantra for tankers is, you know, death before dismount. But we were ordered off the tanks and to be to become a mobilized infantry unit in a few months and then be deployed to Iraq. So that's exactly what they did. They retrained us. And throughout all of that training, uh, we had very little off time because they wanted to train us in just a few months. We, we could never leave the base. And so for months, we went through this sort of intensive, like, second basic training. And then later in 2004, like mid-2004, we take our flight to the Middle East, stop in Germany, and then fly over to Kuwait on a C-130. It was really crazy because in 2004, uh, the military was going through a lot of changes. Supposedly, the conventional battling in the Iraq war was over. Right, So the Iraqi military had fallen by that time, and this is when they're using the term little pockets of resistance. So they wanted to get us to Baghdad, and we would be a, a contingent of the 1st Cavalry uh, patrolling Baghdad and finding these little pockets of resistance and also obviously looking for weapons of mass destruction, which was very serious uh, at the time. But the problem is that because it was so early in the war, there wasn't the sort of budgetary allocations that were necessary to get us the gear that we needed. And so we spent months in Kuwait. We were only supposed to be in Kuwait for a little while, but we spent months in Kuwait, like preparing for insertion into Iraq because our Humvees didn't have doors. Some of them, some of the Humvees only had leather doors, you know, so you could shoot right through them or stab somebody through them. I mean, if a bomb went off, it'd be like Swiss cheese. The Humvee that I actually wound up doing the road march in from Kuwait to Baghdad, which took a number of days, didn't have a floor. So if anything fell out of my pocket, or if I had fallen asleep and my machine gun fall, had fallen between my legs, it would fall right out of the vehicle. I had to keep my feet propped up on the back of the driver's seat, you know, so I couldn't spread Flintstone all through the desert. It's a big part of history for me, because at the time when you had Donald Rumsfeld saying, you know, you don't go to war with the army that you want, you go to war with the army that you have. Well, that's what that was the army that we had. That was the army that I was uh, going into Iraq looking like some convoy out of Mad Max because we had been foraging through garbage dumps in Kuwait looking for metal to weld onto our vehicles. So we literally took like steel drums, garbage cans, anything that we could find made of metal to weld to our vehicles. And we rolled into Iraq, stationed ourselves in Baghdad. Luckily, we didn't experience any contact, uh, at least my end of the convoy didn't experience any contact along the way because we were ill-prepared. I spent 15 months in Iraq. That was one complete tour, but tours don't have a standard length. Marine tours at that time were like four to six months. And so it was one tour, but <laughs> it was really long. And I, I'm trying to remember, it's, it's now I guess it's starting to get a long time ago. At what point George Bush's early uh, premature declaration of victory was in the, the rise of resistance. Yeah, so that had happened right before we came. And also Abu Ghraib had happened right before we came. So then what was your, your tour of duty like there? I was mounted infantry on a 
1114. It's an up-armored Humvee. Once we got them, we spent several months without armored Humvees. We were basically patrolling in the same ragtag Humvees that we did the convoy in. And um, after a few months, we got new Humvees that were they just made. But in fact, all they had really done was slap heavy armor on them. And the armor worked, but the armor made the vehicle top-heavy, prone to roll over. The armor created stress on a number of aspects of the of the vehicle, the engine, the steering block. So we had a lot of difficulties with those vehicles and we used them constantly. I received, on a daily basis, I would receive missions in any time of the day. They could start at 3 a.m., they could start at 3 p.m. and it would be to conduct a raid. It was always an objective. Sometimes it was just a patrol. Sometimes it was a trap con- to conduct a traffic control point when you're stopping cars in a particular area because you believe that you may be able to find someone that you're looking for or find uh, some cache of weapons or some information that might lead to a cache of weapons. We would conduct raids on targets. We had targets that co- collected intel on for a number for, for a while until they were ready to take them, to snag them, and they would call us to actually go and do that. We would, you know, kick open people's doors at 4 o'clock in the morning, hopefully laying in bed with their wife uh, because they would be easy to nab. And so that's what I did for 15 months. That and pull security, combat patrols, uh, and pulling security for uh, other units or escorting various people. One time we even fortified an Iraqi police station uh, because at the time, insurgents were killing, like driving VBIDs, vehicle-borne uh, explosive devices, into Iraqi police stations and blowing them up. So we fortified the police station uh, and stayed there for a number of weeks, you know, to make sure that this particular police station in our area of operations didn't fall. And were you involved in any of the well-known missions or, or battles, such as in Fallujah and other places? Yeah. So I was part of the cordon for Fallujah. So basically, uh, the Marines were given the task of operating inside Fallujah, I believe, and a number of army units created cordons to sort of secure the whole uh, area around Fallujah. So insurgent groups couldn't leave or come into the fight. And so I was part of uh, one of the cordons of Fallujah. So I mean, I could see the planes dropping bombs on the city. I could hear it all the time. In fact, the first combat situation that my unit wound up in was a large contingent of insurgents trying to flee Fallujah at the time and escape the cordon, and they ran into my unit. And that was, you're talking about November and December of 2004? Yeah, I would say that it's around that time. So when did you return to the U.S., either in late, uh, I guess in 2005? Yeah, I returned to the United States in late 2005. I believe it was like November, my close buddy, you know, my battle buddy, uh, who I spent every single moment of the past, you know, few years with, you know, attached at the hip. If he was taking a dump or I was taking a dump, the other person was standing out there. He's from upstate New York. We were leaving Fort Dix where we flew into in New Jersey and he drove me back to New York City. He dropped me off in Alphabet City. We both said to each other, hey, bro, I'll see you in like a few weeks or whatever. Get settled in and we'll talk and meet up. I didn't see him for eight years. And had you had, had any friends or, or yourself suffered uh, significant trauma during that time in Iraq? Yeah. A buddy in my unit uh, died on an operation in my, in my platoon, in fact. And my company, a number of people lost fingers, hands, a foot. So then what are you doing? You're coming back into uh, to the U.S. The reason I had done all of that was to go to school. So the first thing that I did was I, I spent maybe a month just trying to feel normal, which wasn't going to happen. And I was like sleeping at this girlfriend's house. You know, I went, she went to high school with me. She was a ballet dancer. And so after high school, we kept in touch. And while I was in Iraq, she was basically the only person who was writing me. And then when I came home, you know, I stayed with her for a bit, a few weeks. And then I got my own apartment in the Bronx right across the street from Lehman College. And I finally had the wherewithal, you know, financially to go to school. And so I came home in October. In November, I would have been home. By December, I had an apartment. 
January, I was back in college. I mean, it was crazy. I remember sitting in the back of classrooms. Uh, I would wear my sunglasses. I would wear a hood. And I wouldn't speak in class. But I was always a writer. So I wrote very seriously about, you know, the material in class. And, and so my instructors got to know me through my writing, not speaking in class. And they would try to get me to speak in class. And I wasn't really crazy about that. And I had this w one instructor who she just really got through to me. And I wrote a paper in her class about Iraq. And I remember like a week later, she said that I hope that this doesn't offend you. And she drops this flyer on my desk and it had IBW on it. And this organization had just formed one of their principal members, Camilo Mejia, speak about his experience refusing to go back to Iraq and then serving time in prison for it. I went to the book talk and that was the first time that I was able to speak about Iraq, like from my mouth, like speak with another person. Cause afterwards I met all these vets there and they took me out for a burger and a beer. And while I was stuffing my face, I just couldn't stop talking about Iraq, you know, and they just let me go and go and go. And they were like, we could see that you needed that. You know what I mean? And this is the problem when people come back, they just kind of suffer all these things in isolation. You became a member, became active in the Iraq Veterans Against the War at that time? Yeah, I did. Just a few months after that, I would become a national spokesman for them and speak at a number of events. I did a, participated in a protest march along the Gulf Coast, connecting the resources that we spent in Iraq to the lack of resources that we spent addressing Hurricane Katrina survivors. It was obvious to me that the Iraq war was a crime. That became very, that became crystal clear to me when I was there. I was going to say, did you talk about that with people you were deployed with at that time? We would all talk about it to some extent. We would make jokes about it. It was a farce so that, you know, we would be raiding people's houses. And I'm talking like I grab a handful of a person's hair while they're in bed with their wife naked and throw them onto the floor while I'm tying them up. And I don't know anything about this guy. All I know is that if someone comes around the corner too fast and they don't stop when I say all golf, they could get shot. And these people go to prison, a number of people, the Abu Ghraib. This is after the Abu Ghraib scandal. And I'll tell you, it's truly an amazing experience. And it's something that I will never forget, seeing what happens to a man in that situation. And it's so dramatic. You nab this guy up from wherever the hell you nabbed him up. You take him to some detainment facility. He sits there and bakes for weeks until they decide this is the guy we're going to keep. And then they will have me go and take him to Abu Ghraib. I'm blind, fold him, hog tie him, drive him to Abu Ghraib. He doesn't even know where he is. I march him inside like a perp. Then face him toward this wall in the processing area. And then as soon as I take his... Then I take his hands off. When I take his blindfolds off, the first thing that he sees, he's looking at a wall. But the walls have handprints on them. And in the handprints, there's some Arabic symbol that would mean, I guess, place your hand here. And so as soon as I untie his hands, that's the first thing he does. He puts his hand there. Then right after that, he looks up and it says, welcome to Abu Ghraib above, or on the, right below the ceiling above where his hands are. And, and usually, most of the time, in fact, I have not seen a time where it didn't happen. People don't leave their hands there because they just start crying or they start praying. They just break down right there. And while I'm doing all of that, obviously, I have a buddy who's adjacent to me, and I'm not in his line of fire just in case the person jumps on me or something. He just shoot him. And it's just crazy to watch people break down like that all the time. And you don't know what they did. I didn't catch him doing anything. I would just found his name on a roster, and I knew where he lived. And that was my job to go in there and do that. So then tell me about that time as being a national spokesman for IVAW. What was that like for you? It was hard, man. One thing is I never thought about any of this. You can kind of see how my life is one thing after the next, after the next. And it just kind of, it's like I'm a stone rolling down a mountain. It didn't really appear to me that I had any agency along the way. And even as I came into contact with IVAW, that also felt like an extension of that fall. It wasn't like I made a decision to be a part of IVW. It was like a natural progression of the whole thing. And before I knew it, I found myself doing speaking gigs where I'm like speaking in between, you know, Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton at Riverside, where Martin Luther King does the anti-Vietnam speech right there. Speech against the Vietnam War. Yeah. And so 
all of a sudden I found myself back in the United States and I was doing stuff like that. And it was really not because I had made a decision to do that. It was because I had this anger about what took place in Iraq and what was happening and what was still happening. And I wanted to acknowledge the truth of it, my truth. Think that was at all therapeutic i think at the time it was incredibly therapeutic and it was cathartic it was something that i needed you know i think that i would have destroyed myself had i not given voice to those feelings and i couldn't speak about it in such explicit terms with the people that i had served with without setting up a barrier or you know abandoning the brotherhood but when i came out speaking like that you know it gave me a new fraternal bond with people who had been in that situation and who had come to understand intuitively the things that I came to understand as well. Uh, you know, and I've met some veterans, particularly of the war in Iraq, struggling with, you know, PTSD and self-medicating with alcohol. And do you see kind of the effect of trauma on uh, your fellow veterans? And, and how were people dealing with that? What resources or what opportunities were there to, to deal with that? So at the time, the mechanisms to address the, the psychological and emotional effects of war were threadbare. They were very thin. Just to give you some idea, and also, I mean, it's a huge part of my narrative and how I see myself and how I saw myself as well. So the girlfriend that I was seeing when I got back from Iraq, she you know, gave me a place to stay for a bit so I could get my apartment and everything. She had known me for a long time because we went to high school together. We danced ballet together. And um, I remember the first time that we like touched each other and we spent a moment alone when she came to see me when I was in um, out processing in Fort, Dick, Fort Dix. I felt like a wall in relation to her. I remember when she touched me, it was like I could feel the warmth from her hand, but I felt like I was cold, like I was a stone. I felt like I couldn't grab her, like I couldn't even feel her, like my hands were callous. You know, I felt like I couldn't kiss her. And when she kissed me, there was like some kind of buffer in between us, you know, and she felt that as well. And so, you know, those were physical things that I was feeling. Those are physical sensations. And so, you know, the emotional distance was apparent to her. And um, and there were other behaviors that I had going on and things that caused her to be alarmed with me. And I remember when I moved into my apartment in the Bronx across the street from Lehman College. And I remember on Christmas Day, she had invited me to be with her family for Christmas Day. I just didn't want to go anywhere. I didn't want to leave the house. It was like, finally, I was safe in a place that like I could just close the door and no one could get, you know what I mean? And I remember sitting, I wasn't sitting in front of the window, because I, but I wanted to look out of the window and I would sit on the side of the window because it was a safer place. It felt like a safer place for me, you know? And so I could just sort of peer out the window, but like you couldn't really see me. And I remember she came over at that time and she was just like seeing how I was living just within a matter of, you know, a week. And she told me and she just said, you know, if you don't go to the VA and tell them what's going on with you and how you're feeling, then I'm not going to talk to you anymore. And that was a big thing to me because I didn't have any other support. I didn't have anyone else in my life. I didn't have, you know. And so I went to the VA and I, I did. I told them how I was feeling. I told them things that I had told her and they involuntarily committed me right away. Wow. And I'm talking like when I was in Iraq, I had people in my unit who the leadership had deemed 
unsafe for whatever reason. And I'm talking, they're on suicide watch. So they're schlepping around the camp, which is an unsafe place. I mean, we were even invaded, but they didn't even have a weapon because they weren't allowed to have a weapon. They weren't allowed to have bootlaces. They weren't allowed to have a belt. And that's what I felt like in the VA. Like, wow, I became that dude. You know, they locked me up. They got me in one of these bibs. I can't have my clothes. I, you know, I'm completely defenseless. There's a guard on the door. And this is all because I admitted that I was feeling bad. I mean, that was terrible. And that, that experience there, once I got out of that situation, it made me reluctant to go to the VA again. Hmm. It made me reluctant to be honest with the VA about problems that I was having or things that I was feeling. But I understand that I came back so early in the war that they didn't know, you know, they didn't have those things in place. You know, post-traumatic stress disorder is only comes on the scene in the DSM-3 in 1980. You know what I'm saying? In 2004, you know, this is really the first group of people, you know, that are coming back from a combat situation to the United States after uh, the DSM gives voice to that condition, you know? I mean, yeah, you had the first Gulf War, but the first Gulf War can't even compare to what we saw in Iraq and what happened in Iraq, right? I mean, so, and this was something completely different and it wasn't, and it was foreign and it was foreign to the individuals and it was foreign to the institution. And so I found myself sort of slipping through the cracks like that. And um, so it made me reluctant to deal with the VA. And I think that, in fact, I know that IVAW stood in the place of that. You were able to graduate from Lehman. How were you able to navigate that experience? I was a very aggressive student. I was aggressive intellectually because I felt like I had answers to discover. I had studied political science and I studied Africana studies. Well, who were some writers that resonated with you at that time? Noam Chomsky in a huge way. Noam Chomsky was like everything to me at that time. I felt like in so many ways he was one of the only academics who could just speak truthfully about the American brand of imperialism. And it frustrated me so much that it wasn't so obvious to other people, his work and his perspective. At this time, I also started to get a lot really heavy into Du Bois. W.E.B. Du Bois? And it was because uh, I was able to understand certain things about myself through his idea of the double consciousness and my behaviors, the things that I had done to sort of survive. When if I could have chosen, I could have been something so different, perhaps because of my training in the arts, you know, since I was in fifth grade, you know, I've always felt like a creative and, and I was living this life in a, of an automaton and I hated myself for it, especially because I felt in some way that I had lost this part of my humanity that I was trying to get back through various things. And I think activism was a huge part of that. So you're able to graduate. And I guess because of the, the GI bill and those kind of benefits, Actually, I never used the GI Bill because my, my National Guard unit, they had gone through so much shakeups with their structure, and then they were eventually disbanded completely. So I had no infrastructure when it came to my unit. So I didn't get the GI Bill. I never even got it. I had saved up every red cent that I got when I was in Iraq. So when I came back home, I was able to get an apartment even without getting a, having a job within a month because I just showed them my bank account. I was like, look, I'll pay you for the whole year if you just give me a place to stay. And that's how I got my apartment. And then with school, I paid out of pocket. I paid all of that because I couldn't get my GI Bill at the time. I finished school. I didn't use the GI Bill until the post 9-11 GI Bill came uh, into law in 2009. I didn't wind up using it, I think, until like 2010 when I was in graduate school. So then you graduate from college. And where do you go from there? So because of all the activism that I was doing in college, And an awful lot of lobbying as well. You know, I had had private meetings with Ted Kennedy. The day that I had a private meeting with Ted Kennedy, I love the guy. It was a very passionate speech that he made about raising the minimum wage. Well, he stormed into his office with the same face that he was still wearing on the floor of the Senate to talk to me. And his face was red like an apple (laughs) because he was screaming in there. And then he came in there and then he had this very calm conversation with me, but he still looked like steam was coming out of his ears. And uh, I had had private conversations with John Kerry. I had lobbied Capitol Hill with Susan Sarandon. I had a number of occasions to work with her. She's a very lovely woman and and fierce as well. We stormed the hill. Uh, Me, Susan Sarandon, the director of a documentary I was in, Patricia Folkrod, because I was uh, featured in The Ground Truth uh, in a few months after I came back from Iraq. 
Um, some another vet who's who was a founder of IVW and, and one of my closest friends still in the world, Garrett Reppenhagen. You know, we all stormed the hill together, and we had the opportunity to meet all these sen- senators and congressmen. We did it a number of times. Uh, Harry Reid as well. And so one time I had run into Barack Obama in the hallway when we were leaving after a long day of lobbying, and I had a quick exchange with him. And he said that he had watched the film, The Ground Truth, and that he would he was interested in talking to me about it. And then when I went back home, uh, within a few weeks, some of his staffers had called me and asked if I was interested in uh, coming on to his senatorial staff like in a consultant position. And so I did. I left the Bronx to work in the senatorial office for Obama. And what was that like? Did you feel like, you know, your voice was productive there? Or? In the beginning, it was really amazing. And it was because I remember the first piece of legislation that I had the opportunity to interact with him over. It was, in fact, a moratorium on personality discharges from the armed forces. So at the time, during the Iraq and Afghanistan war, the wars on terror, people like me were coming back from having served combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then the Army, the Marines uh, are discharging them and telling them, saying that they have pre-existing you know, uh, conditions, personality disorders that would preclude them from being able to have any VA benefit. And so this was something that I was very passionate about. It was something that Obama was very passionate about. And so he had endorsed this legislation that was in the Senate and helped craft this bill to stop the Department of Defense from doing that until the proper investigation was made about personality disorders and its connection with combat trauma and what have you. That was huge, man. I mean, I felt so good. You know, I had served with people, obviously, who died. I had experienced, you know, trauma in combat. I had one friend that I served with in my company who took his life when we came home. Another friend died from complications related to his service injuries. So to think about these people being cut loose from the VA and not receiving any compensation, not receiving any care was appalling to me. And to be able to work for a senator who could listen enough and care enough to endorse a bill like that was huge. It was like if I didn't accomplish anything else in my life, if I wasn't part of anything else in my life, if I walked outside and I got hit by a bus, I was good because I tried to pay it forward. You know what I mean? And how long did you work on his staff? So I was like six months. And, uh, and by the end, I hated it. But the main reason that I began to hate it, I wasn't groomed to be in an environment like that. And so I found it incredibly stifling. It, it was just so radically different from anything that I had a point of reference for. And the way that people spoke to each other, when they disliked each other or disagreed, or the way that people spoke to me would leave me at night thinking about things that people said and trying to you know, and reading deeply into them. And I realized also, so, so when I was in Iraq, I would say things like, if my congressmen knew what, you know, we were doing, we wouldn't be doing this. And, and a lot of that had to do with weapons of mass destruction, because some of it was just so absurd, and it was very risky, and we were in harm's way for really nothing. And so when I got home, and I had that voice and I had the ability to see those people and look them in the eye and hear them talk about policy, I realized, like, no, no, that's not true. The reason why we're there is, in fact, because of these people. It's, like, so removed from humanity and from the ways that human beings interact with one another and experience emotion and connection and community. And it was just alienating, and it was ostracizing. I had this video of me uh, when I was living in D.C., and I'm just talking what I'm doing there. Like, why are you living in D.C.? Who are you working for? And I just seemed so dejected. And that's how I, was, how I began to feel toward the end of it. And it had much more to do with me growing and learning more about policy and about the ongoings in Capitol Hill that just made me really disenchanted. And uh, although I had the opportunity to continue to stay on, even to move over to Obama's campaign. When he ran for president? Yeah, when he ran for president, I just neglected to do all of that because I was so disenchanted with, with everything. And I, and I kept in touch with some people who were working in his office at that time who did move over to the campaign and who did go into his administration. And they were always telling me, man, there's a place for you right here. But it was never my environment. It was never something that I could have, that I could have remained viable in. But I'm happy to have had that experience. So then where do you go from there, moving on from your policy experience? Before I even 
uh, left for D.C., I had, had a number of conversations with instructors about going to graduate school. So at some point, I received all of the responses from these different programs, and I got into a number of programs. But in fact, the program that gave me the best opportunity was CUNY, the Graduate Center. And so I went back. I went back to, to New York. I went, I went back to CUNY. And what was your focus? So it was sociology. Uh, and what I loved mostly about sociology was that it was, it was the discourse. Like I could study something like political science or Africana studies, but all of those things just seemed so parochial when it came to sociology because sociology just encompassed all of it. And the, the perspective that was burgeoning in me from my experiences growing up and from my experiences in Iraq and from my experiences just trying to survive, it was like sociology, sociological discourse really helped me find that or understand that, you know? And so what has been your research, the focus of your work? So my dissertation was basically exposition of the state of student veterans in the City University of New York, which is the largest public urban university in the country. And City University was my laboratory. I was, you know, given a lot of opportunity and doors open uh, for me and a city university to conduct this research because it helped the institution as, you know, as a graduate student. Uh, I was on, the, the, the chancellor of CUNY uh, had made, called the President's Commission on Student Veterans. So I had to present to them my research at various parts of the process of conducting it to help them make decisions, policy decisions in the city university for student veterans. You seem to have really excelled academically after coming back from the military. Are there uh, sort of difficulties or challenges you notice vets are facing and the ways that help them achieve success? I mean, I find that to be a very difficult question to answer, and there's a number of reasons for that. So the first thing is that, you see, the officer corps and the U.S. military has a much more academic culture, but the NCO non-commissioned officers, the enlisted corps, does not have that academic culture. One of the reasons for that is obviously that officers are selected out of people who are college graduates. You graduate from college, and then you go through officer training, and then you become an officer. You know what I'm saying? Whereas you could just graduate from high school, and at certain times during the wars on terror, like let's say circa 2008, 2009, you probably didn't even have to be a high school graduate because they were so desperate for bodies that they were just taking anyone. So one thing is that you have an academic culture in one aspect or, or in one hierarchy of the military, uh, which constitutes only, you know, the officer corps is only 15% of the military. And then the enlisted corps is like 80 to 85% of the military. So you have this minority in the military that has been selected because of their academic, let's say, acumen, and then others are relegated to another pool for having lacked those educational opportunities, right? And so now to move on from that, enlisted culture in the military, because it doesn't come from this academic place and it doesn't have academia or anything academic as a point of reference for it, it is in so many ways, it's more of a blue-collar sort of culture. And it, first of all, depending upon what branch of the military you're in, and then depending upon what job skill you wind up performing, it may have a culture that is completely antithetical to anything academic. And so it's a crazy thing to me that we can have these people who they constitute the bulk of the military. Sure. As I said, 80 to 85 percent of the military, they're lack of academic opportunities or the ability to grow in that way is then reinforced and in some senses even crystallized by the culture of the enlisted ranks. And then after military service, they're given an opportunity to excel in that way, but we, they have been fashioned to be anything but that. But some people find it. They find a desire to know. Not just that, but then you have people who have the ability to sort of conceptualize academic pursuits in the affirmative sort of way that they had been able to relate and understand developing within their job skill within the military, right? So they can approach, let's say, the study of engineering, you know, with the same sort of zeal that they approach, let's say, becoming an excellent marksman. But we have to acknowledge the extent to which the enlisted culture is really not conducive to intellectual pursuit. And so you can train 
enlisted culture is producing people who are good workers. They're good laborers. They may even be intellectually gifted in some way, and they can become great engineers, great scientists. But they are, by and large, even historically, this has been the case, attracted to vocational areas of education. In fact, when we, if you look at the World War II GI Bill, you see millions of vets being injected into higher education and revolutionizing it, really because they wanted it to have more of a vocational emphasis. They didn't want to learn about history for the sake of learning about history. Hmm. They didn't want to you know, learn about philosophy in order to engage with abstract ideas. They wanted to learn things that would help them develop their lives after school. And that was their focus. And so when we talk about the 80% or 85% of the military coming out and trying to find themselves in the civilian world, they have to run through that sort of process, right? I mean, manual labor in the United States is, you know, well on the decline, right? And it's been for a long time. We don't have those blue collar jobs, many of those blue collar jobs that you can just find and learn a craft and, you know, spend your life doing that. And so, but enlisted culture is conducive to that. It's factory, you know, it's a sort of factory worker mentality, laborer mentality. And, and so there's a lots of hurdles in that. Mm-hmm. The other thing I found very interesting, the work you've been doing is the trips you've been taking uh, with veterans uh, to places like Alaska and Montana and doing mountain climbing and things like this. Can you describe uh, what, what that's been like and what that's been about? After the military, I worked for a while uh, with this organization, Veterans Green Jobs, that no longer exists, unfortunately. It was an amazing organization. It provided veterans vocational training and jobs in the green sector, even some job placement opportunities. Veterans Green Jobs had large contracts, million-dollar contracts with the state of Colorado to conduct, like, retro fitting houses, weatherizing, installing solar panels, and all sorts of things. I was on their board of directors for some time. And while I was working with them, the organization hired a chief operating officer, Stacy Bear. One time, he's like, hey, would you want to go climb a mountain with me? And, and I'm like, sure, you know, I haven't climbed a mountain before, so let's do it, you know. But, you know, I'm from New York City, and I was, had no intention on climbing a mountain. So I'm in Timberlands, in jeans, in fact. I was in Timberlands in jeans, blue jeans, and, you know, a t-shirt and like I'm like I'm ready to go like let's do it (laughs) and he's like dude your feet are gonna get chewed up you know you're gonna get your crotch is gonna get shaped like here's some other stuff for you to wear so he gave me some other stuff for me to wear and we climbed this mountain Gray's Peak that day it's a 14er it's my first mountain let alone 14er it was an amazing experience it was an amazing experience and, and it really solidified this friendship I remember we had a conversation when we were climbing that mountain that day. And I told him, I was like, you know, Stacy, you could do this as a job. And he took that and ran. And they started running trips, getting veterans outside and linked up with guiding companies to do various outdoor activities, hiking, camping, kayaking, canoeing, uh, climbing, obviously, ice climbing even. And so I did a number of trips with them initially after they had formed. It was a really amazing experience. I kind of went through the process of learning how to climb by just hanging out with them and seeing the development of their organizations and participating in those activities. And a number of years down the line, I've taken upon myself to conduct research of how veterans, particularly combat, this one uh, ethnography, excuse me, this one ethnography that I did is about how combat veterans are using extreme outdoor sporting, particularly ice climbing and mountaineering to you know, cope with reintegration into civil society. Is this therapeutic, do you think? I think it's incredibly therapeutic. You know, my only point of reference for the outdoors was the military. Before I served in the military, I didn't, I, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn, man. Now I do a lot of activism for a, uh, for various organizations like environmental organizations and including and primarily the Sierra Club. I was lobbying in favor of to preserve the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in uh, Alaska, where I had done an expedition with a number of veterans a few months before. And I said, before I served in the military, I had not even seen a site that was completely natural, that like belied modernity. I grew up in Brooklyn, concrete, streetlights, 
park benches. So one of the questions, in fact, that I asked Stacey Bear when we climbed Gray's Peak, I remember being at the top of Gray's Peak, this 14, my first time seeing anything like this. And I asked him, I was like, dude, they don't have a rail up here? <laughs> he started laughing. He's like, what are you talking about, man? <laughs> it's like, yo, people could, I could just fall off of this right now. <laughs> but that was how my mind worked because that is the world that I grew up in, you know? Um, and so... It's been an incredible experience for me developing even as a person, being able to have these experiences in the outdoors in untamed places. In 2015, I was able to do an expedition in uh, Summit Denali with a group of veterans. It was a self-guided trip. We trained for like two years to build the skills and the teamwork necessary in order to summit Denali. And we achieved it in 2015. one thing I could say about it is that the military made me unafraid of the elements in some way. Like I, obviously I have great respect for uh, the elements and nature, cold, heat. However, living how I did in the, in the infantry, uh, I mean, essentially living like a dog, I realized that I don't really need so much. All of the things that we possess and the things that we buy and we accumulate, it wasn't necessary. I had a backpack. I had my, my rucksack. I had my boots. And I had my rifle. And so the closest experience that I've been able to have to anything like that, uh, and especially the edifying aspects of having served in the military, the sort of things that support the development of the ego, the things that support the, the health of oneself, like those things I've been able to retain in mountaineering, ice climbing and rock climbing. You know, that self-sufficiency, that feeling of having a fraternal bond with a group of people who you're depending on them, they're depending on you, and you're working as a tight unit. The only place that I've been able to experience that, that is anything like, you know, to that level of intensity of the military has been in mountaineering, ice climbing, rock climbing. I got to ask, going through all of your experiences, you're clearly someone that has gotten great value from public education, specifically in the arts and artistic expression, uh, from your experiences in the military, have uh, uh, an understanding of uh, militaristic imperialism and what that looks like and what that means and the implications of that and the traumatic effects on, you know, everybody involved. Someone that came back and and had success in public education and also a, a respect for the environment and the therapeutic effects of that and the value of conserving it. When you look at the political environment we're in white right now, and you know specifically looking at the budget that the the president is proposing to cut funding for education for the arts and increase you know militaristic funding, what do you see is is our work moving forward, or what gives you hope moving forward? To be honest with you, I was really afraid that you would ask me this question, and the real reason why is I have to say, man, the life that I've lived has not has not allowed me to look favorably on even hope as an abstract thing. I don't hope. I look at the world as it is, and I live in it, and I try to find something that is worth moving going from one day to the next. And so to tell you the honest truth, like, I don't have any hope in this environment. I mean, I had very serious criticisms of the Obama administration, and all of that is like water under the bridge when we look at this disaster that is taking place right now. And so I don't have any hope for uh, the future of education, public education in the United States, the future of, you know, health care, public health care in the United States, for the future of the citizenry. Because without adequate access to education, without adequate access to health care, without the ability to arm oneself with knowledge necessary to even take care of your own environment and your own community, there is nothing to hope for. And so it's unfortunate that I feel this way, but this is, in, this is truly how I feel because I only see an exacerbation of the issues. I won't use the word hope in some way I protest it. But one thing that amazes me, though, is to see young people who were the age that I was when I was fighting in Iraq and the age that I was when I realized that I was going to Iraq, talking about things that at that age I could not understand or did not understand that I didn't, that these weren't pub- public conversations for me in the social networks that I had at the time. And so I find that really fascinating. And maybe, maybe there is something in the future for that younger people politicizing themselves and also taking responsibility of possession 
of their rights as part of the citizenry. I mean, maybe there is something in that. But as far as the the institutions themselves, those the people within those institutions, the the trajectory that I can imagine from what's going on right now, yeah, it doesn't look good at all to me. Uh, maybe cope is the better word than hope nowadays. But uh, hope that you keep your chin up because, uh, and and I know that we're going to talk again because I think your experiences give you it seems to me, an intuitive understanding of trauma and healing and therapy that may be hard to articulate, but that I think has great potential and great need in, in, in our country and in our world right now. Uh, and so I think, you, I think you have great work to come in addition to the great works you've done already. Well, I hope so. And I, I thank you very much for the conversation. And, um, and, I, and I think that you've even given me a lot to think about. One more thing I, I like to ask people that I talk to if you can recommend to myself and to others a work of art, uh, uh, an album, or a book, uh, bring to my attention that I might not otherwise read or listen to. Wow. And if you need a moment to think, and it can be on any topic, if you need a moment to think, uh, I think I want to give a couple of, uh, of recommendations. These are, I don't know if you've read either one of them, two, uh, probably the best books out of Baltimore that I've been reading the last couple of years. One from a couple of years ago, Ta-Nehisi's Coates uh, book, Between the World and Me. Absolutely. Uh, he went to the same high school that I did for a year or two. And the other one is more recent from last year by Dee Watkins that's called The Cook-Up. So he's another interesting character, and it's just sort of his narrative, how he went from being kind of a wayward, you know, naive street dealer to being a, a literary professor at the University of Baltimore. Cool. So I'll... I'll I'll try to send them along to you. Have you have you read either one of those? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I actually used uh, Between the World and Me to teach my race and ethnicity classes. Yeah, it, it is a profound book, and it's inc- incredibly dense in terms of the history that he weaves into what is essentially a a letter to his son. I, I think it's a I think it's a it's amazing work. In fact, it's sort of pattern after James Baldwin's A Fire Next Time, and I think it's essential. I think that's essential reading. A comparison of Between the World and Me and James Baldwin's A Fire Next Time is essential reading for Americans. Right on. I think that if you can pick up these books and you can see, first of all, the sort of parody in the way that they talk about issues of discrimination and race across space and time. It's not the influence of one author upon the other, as much as it is the influence of a reality upon both of these people and then finding a vehicle to express it, you know? And so I I would certainly recommend James Baldwin's A Fire Next Time. Another thing that I would recommend, certainly since we've been speaking about public education and we've been speaking about, and you even asked me a question about, um, you know, steps that veterans can take, let's say, to take control of their education. or um, I would say, if you're not familiar with Paulo Freire's uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, then you should certainly pick it up. I, I, I've, I've definitely looked at the table of contents before. <laughs> well, it's certainly worth reading. And even if it's only the introduction, the introduction will, will draw you into Paulo Freire's argument for not allowing institutions to control your education, but always being looking for opportunities for you to extend your education, being an autodidact, teaching yourself, as well as, you know, learning things from institutions that, that are handy. Well, I, I have to thank you for spending so much time, uh, uh, Damon, Dr. Mullins. You've certainly given me a, a lot to think about. And- I thank you for the opportunity to speak, Dr. Fitzgerald, and, um, and I, look, I look forward to future opportunities. All right, my friend. Take care. When I say fire, you'll say next time we the fire, we the fire, fire. I came through fields of cane to claim you in the place where there wasn't a north to race to. Just like the cotton sugar cane blaze to. Just like the South Jamaican slaves raid to. Maroon clicks thick in the hills who made do. Black gorillas who made the British militias pay dues. Control slave mad crews are they best dudes. I come from wrong the pain of change tools. Just some African. Thanks for joining us on The Ballet or the Bullet, Trauma and the Citizen Soldier with Dr. Damon Mullins. The music that you heard during that podcast included two tracks from the Diggable Planets, the first being the May 4th movement from Blowout Comb, and the second, Burrow Check. And yes, that cameo you heard was Guru from Gangstar. 
as well as the song Feel So Good by Mace. The next one uh, song was from Trombone Shorty, the song Dirty Water. And lastly, The Fire Next Time by Baltimore rapper Son of None. And I want to close out the show uh, by congratulating my wife, Cassandra, who just finished medical school and will be starting residency soon with the 1994 Bayesian Soka hit by the mighty Gabby, Dr. Cassandra. Thanks again for joining us. In my midsection, I didn't have to pay. Then she gave me something and then me swallow fever gone right away. One injection in my midsection, I didn't have to pay. Then she gave me something and tell me swallow fever gone right away. When you're coming back, Santa, when you're coming to give me a medicine. When you're coming back, Santa, when you're coming to give me a medicine.